Hello and welcome to David's Politics Show. My guest today is Sam Raghavine. He is the director of the Lowy Institute's International Security Program in Sydney and a visiting fellow at the Strategic Defense and Defense Studies Center at Australian National University. Before joining the Lowy Institute, Sam was a senior strategic analyst in Australia's Peak Intelligence Agency, the Office of National Assessments, where his work dealt mainly with North Asian strategic affairs, including nuclear strategy and Asian military forces. He has also worked on arms control policy in Australia's Department of Foreign Affairs and as an analyst in the Defense Intelligence Organization. In 2019, he published a book entitled Our Very Own Brexit, Australia's Hollow Politics and Where It Could Lead Us, about the hollowing out of Western democracy and its implications for Australia. Sam writes for newspapers and magazines in Australia and around the world and is a regular commentator on the Lowy Institute's digital magazine, The Interpreter, of which he was the founding editor from 2007 to 2014. Sam Rogovine, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, David. It's lovely to uh, get the invitation. Well, it's great to have you on. And uh, yeah, I, I actually uh, came across uh, a piece that you wrote uh, on, the, on the Lowy Institute's magazine uh, mm. about um, the significance of the Afghanistan uh, pullout for, for Australia and more generally for, for American power in Asia. And I, th I thought it was just a, a very interesting take uh, on... On, on what it means. There's been a lot of um, breathless commentary, I think, mm. uh, certainly on, on, on the pullout. And uh, I'd like to definitely uh, talk to you about that a little bit later in the show. But um, since you, you, you are an expert on uh, military affairs, um, I'm looking forward to profiting from, from your expertise uh, because uh, the, the, the topic of China's rise has been uh, on everyone's minds for probably you know at least the last decade or so and and ever more so in the last uh, couple of years but i think sometimes you know when when people are you know talking about um you know china's moves on taiwan or something like that uh it's important to remain grounded in the kind of concrete nitty-gritty details of what the actual military balance is and so i think it's important to uh, uh kind of get a handle on on on, on what the uh, what the military dimensions uh, are at the moment. Um, so so let's maybe let's maybe start start with that. And let me ask you um, first of all about the about the Chinese Navy. Um, we know that China, of course, traditionally was primarily the, or the PLA rather uh, was primarily a land army. Um, and then in in the 90s, they you know they saw how how the U.S. fought uh, the first Gulf War and they realize, you know, maybe, maybe we don't need so many uh, semi-useless conscripts, right? We, we might need to modernize the force and change the, change the uh, force structure and, and so on and so forth. And certainly since the 2000s, it seems to me anyway that uh, they've, they've really started to focus uh, a lot on their Navy, which, which makes sense. I mean, they're trying to, you know, break out of their cramped little um, island chains, as it were. And so we've seen them uh, really ramp up construction and not just um, first of all, numerically, right? They have they have a lot more ships, but also qualitatively. And of course, we've we've seen them do this remarkable thing of just creating um, creating islands out of more or less out of thin air. I mean, it's actually out of sand and earth, right? But uh, and uh, so let let me ask you uh, just to start our, our conversation today. What is your what is your evaluation of um, where the where the PLA Navy is today? Perhaps both in terms of um, just the, the, the raw, the raw numbers, but also qualitatively? Well, uh, it's probably worthwhile starting by just, uh, by just, if you'll indulge me, just redefining the question slightly and talking about Chinese, Chinese maritime forces rather than just the Navy, because if we look purely at the Navy, we won't get the full picture. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think if, if I can um, predict where this conversation is going to go, it is going to be largely about the contest between the United States and China, the power contest in Asia, and, and Australia's place in that uh, in that contest. And that is overwhelmingly a maritime contest. So it's worth looking at at, at Chinese maritime forces uh, um, uh, generally, rather than just uh, uh, the PLA Navy. And and mm -hmm. so the the. The growth of Chinese maritime forces over the last, let's say, thirty years, because you're right to pick, you know, the early '90s as the date when this 
when this really kicked off. Uh, so the growth since that period has been pretty spectacular. Mm -hmm. uh, and it takes in the Navy, of course, primarily, but also uh, the, the, the Air Force, which has, uh, you know, capabilities to, uh, to hit targets uh, at sea. Uh, but it also takes in uh, the PLA rocket force, which is a, a key element in uh, in Chinese strategy. Right. Um, and the Coast Guard, right, in terms of how they're using it? Thank you. Thank you. Not, uh, the Coast Guard and other uh, constabulary, maritime constabulary forces that, uh, that, mm -hmm. uh, that China uh, possesses and which have grown, uh, again, dramatically over the last 30 years in, in capability. You know, it's at the point now where they're regularly launching uh, vessels of, you know, destroyer size, um, in order to patrol uh, its, um, you know, it, its far-reaching um, maritime claims. Mm -hmm. uh, but look, we, we, we've really gone from a position in the last thirty years of where China was uh, a, a a clearly and obviously weaker maritime force even than Taiwan. Uh, to a position today where China is clearly and obviously the second biggest and most powerful maritime force in the world, so it re it it really is a a G two in that sense. Now it's it's the United States first, mm -hmm. uh, and then China, and then you know there's uh, and then there's there's fifth and sixth. There's not even anyone in uh, in third and fourth place. Um, it's 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 daylight really, and and. And that's been a combination of, um, uh, first of all, uh, uh, not so much growth in the number of hulls, although that has occurred, but but modernisation. And uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know the 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 experts. If you uh, for, for the listeners, I would recommend um, Andrew Erickson, an American analyst who is is really expert on um, uh, on, on on maritime technology and maritime uh, uh, naval architecture. You know, he he argues now that um, uh, Chinese surface combatants are now every bit the equal of of, of uh, equivalent classes of ships produced by uh, the United States and produced by the Europeans and the Russians. Mm, interesting. Uh, you know, uh, so so the the quality is there. Uh, the quantity of of uh, really first class uh, major surface combatants is very very high. And uh, of course, over the over the last decade or so, we've seen the emergence of a dedicated Chinese aircraft carrier program, which is now right. uh, about to flower fully into this into this completely indigenous uh, program that can produce what is almost the equal of the American supercarriers. Mm -hmm. uh, so the, the 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 third Chinese carrier, which is now under construction, and we regularly see. Uh, you know, photos of it being built in the shipyard. Mm -hmm. uh, that that will be only slightly smaller than equivalent American carriers, and it won't be nuclear powered. Uh, but it will be certainly, other than the American carriers, it will be comfortably the most capable aircraft carrier in the world. Uh, uh, so they've come a long way from the from that Ukrainian one they they bought, right? Oh yeah, that, that they've come uh, an incredibly long way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, uh, submarines, their 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 ascent has not been quite as dramatic. Uh, so the the growth, for instance, in um, in nuclear powered submarines has been a little more halting. It, mm -hmm. it looks like that's about to turn around because we've there's now satellite uh, commercial satellite imagery, <clears throat> excuse me, indicating uh, a huge new um, a nuclear submarine a building facility, which might be able to turn out something like two or even three new boats a year, which is, you know, really uh, a very uh, substantial build rate. Um, the mm. Americans, I think, turn out something like one a year at the uh, at the moment. Yeah. Um, uh, and then I, I mentioned earlier the uh, the PLA rocket force. The reason that's so important is because China is um, the first country in the world to deploy uh, ballistic missiles that can hit m ships moving at sea, uh, you know, at long distances, at, mm -hmm. at several thousand kilometres distance. Uh, this is the so-called uh, carrier killer missiles that uh, that has been right. written about in the in the defence media, uh, the DF twenty six. Um, and and now so numerous, in fact, in the in the Chinese arsenal that it it can be regarded more as a uh, generally a ship killer rather than just a carrier killer. 
mm-hmm. uh, because it, you know, they have enough now that they can target all kinds of um, of capital ships rather than just um, uh, rather than just uh, aircraft carriers. Right, right. I, I read that they have uh, two, more than two hundred launchers now, right? I believe that's the latest figure, and I recommend uh, on that point a paper that. Um, uh, an American analyst named Tom Shugart has written for the Lowy Institute. If you're, uh, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, if your listeners are interested to to read more about that, Tom's got a uh, you know a, a brilliant command of all the facts and figures about uh, uh, about the build up of uh, of the Chinese Navy and and just the and the, the you know the the sheer scale of the effort. Mm-hmm. Let me let me ask quickly um, uh, about submarines just to go back to that um, to, to the extent that this is you know not classified information obviously but uh, is there is there still a sense in which uh, uh american submarines have have a qualitative edge in terms of the the acoustic signature or or are we really talking about the chinese ones being uh, essentially on par now no the current classes of chinese submarines particularly the nuclear submarines are still uh thought to be a, a generation maybe a generation a half and a half behind where the americans are Okay. Uh, and 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 behind Russia as well, uh, that the, there is an expectation that a new generation of uh, Chinese uh, nuclear-powered submarines will emerge in the coming years, both ballistic missile-carrying submarines, but also attack submarines. Mm-hmm. And it's thought that they'll be closer to uh, the the latest generation of Russian uh, of the Russian equivalents, but they won't be as good as the latest generation of the Americans. Okay. Interesting. Um, so l- let me let me now ask you about um, well, actually the, the the rocket forces, but more more on the on the strategic side. Um, mm. Recently, the the head of um, strategic command, the the uh, um, well, American strategic command, Admiral Richard, um, said that that China was in the midst of a quote strategic breakout, um, referring to the to the silos that were discovered, etc. Mm. Um, h- how do you interpret that? I mean, it, it, do you think they kind of Sort of realize that they're 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 dissatisfied with the with the number of um, nuclear weapons they had two hundred or three hundred or whatever whatever it was. Yeah, it, it is a really dramatic shift, and of course we're <clears throat> excuse me we're yet to really um, know how many of these silos will actually be filled with missiles, and then in turn mm-hmm. how many warheads each of these missiles will uh, will carry. So until we have a better idea of that, we don't know how much of a uh, a breakout this really is but <clears throat> mm-hmm. on its face it, it's starting to look like china moving from you know uh from its purely minimalist deterrent posture uh and so uh, yeah, yeah a, a fairly dramatic um escalation of uh or, or increase in the numbers of chinese warheads um mm-hmm. uh and uh, what what's the motivation for that? Well, look, it, it's very hard to know, it, it, but it it could be in part that uh, China perhaps rates um, America's missile defense efforts more highly than than we in the uh, in the open source community do. Uh-huh. Uh, I mean, most people working in that world still regard that uh, that that system as being um, pretty subpar, and that could easily be overwhelmed by China. Right. Uh, but maybe the Chinese are projecting a you know a different future where uh, where they need a larger number of missiles to guarantee a second strike capability. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it could also be uh, just a, a question of prestige that China now you know believes that it, it's more uh, appropriate for its rank in world terms to have a larger nuclear force as as a you know as a reflection of its uh, of its national power and national strength. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we, we can only speculate, but it, it on its right. face it looks like a very dramatic increase. Yeah, and and actually that that reminds me of something I, I wanted to ask you about. Uh, just to go back to the to the navy real quick. Obviously, there there is a there is a, a difference in terms of the the force structures, right? Because as you said, that the Chinese are are building their their third aircraft carrier, um, but the U.S. has eleven or or twelve. Mm. So. Obviously, they're spread out all over the globe, so they're not all concentrated in in right. in, in Asia. But um, we we've seen you know talk about um, the the Navy actually wanting to divest of some some of their um, current current assets like the the Ticonderoga cruisers in order to have the funds and then the 
and the leeway to to develop um, um, other assets for precisely for for the the the, the challenge um, with China. Uh, but on the other hand, they they still have the carriers, and, and they're struggling to keep you know I think the sort of three hundred. 300 ship navy that kind of thing mm. to what extent do you think the numbers here matter i mean does it uh given that the u.s has 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 the carriers which are still you know an enormous force projection capability does it is it important that the u.s get to you know 350 400 is there some numerical threshold that you, that you think is important uh yes and no i mean the numbers always matter uh when you're trying to uh you know, deter an adversary. Uh, if you don't have enough of something, they won't be deterred. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, I think it's not useful to focus on straight comparisons between platforms. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the, the carrier uh, comparison is the obvious one. But what it implies when you start talking about America having this many versus China having that many is that these systems are designed essentially to go up against one another. But I don't think that's the case. Mm-hmm. and. China, my argument for some years now has been that China is effectively building two navies. One is the navy that is built as what's called a, a, an anti-access area denial force, A2AD as it's called in the, mm-hmm. in the defence literature. And this is essentially a force that is designed to deny the use of the oceans in, on China's periphery and you know, even several thousand kilometres out from China's shores. Mm-hmm. to deny the United States and its allies the free or the easy use of that ocean. Uh, and a force like that is not meant to dominate the sea, but it's meant, merely meant to make it impossible or near impossible for the enemy to dominate. Mm-hmm. And to build that kind of a force, you need lots of missiles and you need lots of other platforms that can sink ships. That means um, aircraft carrying anti-ship missiles, uh, it means lots of uh, diesel electric submarines of relatively short range, but extremely quiet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also means, uh, as we mentioned earlier, the the carrier killer missiles. So that is a sea denial force. Interesting. Yeah. And that is the, that that is the force that I think is designed to make it, you know, near impossible at the very least, extremely expensive for the United States to move its carrier force. Uh, into uh, into the Asia Pacific and to intervene in something like a Taiwan contingency. Mm-hmm. So you notice up to now that I haven't said anything about the surface fleet, right? Which is the the one of the most dramatic aspects of China's uh, uh, maritime expansion. But that's because I think that's the second navy that China is building, and that's a navy that's not designed to go up against the United States because surface ships are very vulnerable against an adversary like the US. Mm-hmm. I think the surface ship navy, including the carrier force, is effectively a post-American navy. It's designed effectively to become the dominating, uh, or at least the the uh, the regionally superior force uh, that that uh, that flies the flag for China after the United States decides that that the game is up and it's no longer worth it to actually mm-hmm. you know defend its interests in the Asia Pacific. Uh, what the United States has proven since the end of the Cold War is that a, a big uh, carrier-centred navy with lots of surface ships is extremely useful when your adversaries don't have much uh, capability to sink those kind of ships. Right, yeah. You can just park them park them in the front yard, right? Exactly, and, and, and fly the flag and fly lots of, lots of sorties off the, off the flat tops to hit uh, you know, countries like Iraq, for instance, or... Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the operations in Somalia and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but when your adversary does have even minimal uh, anti, you know, minimally capable anti-ship capability, mm-hmm. uh, when it's capable of, um, uh, you know, flying uh, sea-skimming anti-ship missiles, and we've seen time and again in the Falklands, uh, we've seen it in the Gulf in, uh, with the USS Stark, for instance, uh, that surface ships are extremely vulnerable to even small numbers of uh, of anti ship missiles. So in that kind of scenario, big carrier centred fleets are not, uh, you know, are highly vulnerable. Uh, and because they're so expensive, um, the United States right. is reluctant to use them in that kind of role. So that's why I say that the, the carrier centred fleet that the, that China is building is not designed to go up against the United States in some midway style battle. 
it's actually it, that's the that's the post-American portion of the fleet in my in my mind. Mm-hmm. That's that's so interesting that you mentioned the Falklands because I, I I was just wondering whether people are you know, I'm sure that I'm sure both navies are are looking at that right because that was probably one of the most recent, perhaps the most salient example of a, the kind of expeditionary naval warfare that might might have that might might happen right if if um if something you know happens on the Senkaku islands or or on taiwan and you know as as the navy and the marines keep saying they'd have to fight to get to the fight and and you know the 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 argentine planes had to fly i mean once once you know once the belgrano was sunk the the argentine planes had to had to fly from the mainland right fly which i think was like two or three hours away just to get to the Falklands, and then they were on they were on station for not that long, and still they managed to inflict a lot of damage, right? In, inflict a lot of damage, and and but for a few failed um, uh, bombs that simply didn't arm in time, and and for a shortage of uh, existed anti ship missiles, mm-hmm. uh, Britain would have lost an aircraft carrier uh, and lost a few more capital ships, and and would have lost the war as a result. Uh, but on the other hand, the uh, the fact that the the Belgrano was sunk by a um, by a British um, uh, nuclear powered submarine is, is is another indication of the you know the the vulnerability of surface ships in a modern right. uh, in modern warfare. Mm-hmm. Uh, so all, it it all to me paints the picture that uh, a a big uh, carrier centered fleet. Mm-hmm. Uh, is 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 highly vulnerable uh, against uh, a determined and, uh, and and sophisticated adversary that has a lot of anti ship capabilities, which China now has. Right, that's fascinating. So l- let me uh, change tack here a little bit and ask you about uh, where Australia fits um, fits in all of mm-hmm. this. Um, and and we'll we'll I'd like to get to the more of the political side um, just a little bit later, but just to carry on with this. Um, with this military theme, um, let's talk about Australia's military posture. Now, now I, I, I've read in one of your one of your pieces that uh, you actually argue that, uh, for example, Australia should not develop certain capabilities, like, for example, a long range um, land attack capability. Um, mm-hmm. Tell tell our listeners what 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 your argument is there and and uh, what the thinking is behind that. Well, I guess it's worth premising this by saying that that Australia, along with Singapore has the the largest and most sophisticated military force in Southeast Asia, mm-hmm. uh, but so that 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 is sort of the grounding uh, premise here. But ha- however, however, the the big caveat there is that um, uh, it's not only China that's that's rising. I mean, China's rise is incredibly important for Australia, but so is uh, the rise of Indonesia, which on mm-hmm. uh, I think on some credible projections will be. Something like the fourth largest economy in the world by the middle of the century. Uh, so we're going to have a great power on our doorstep for the first time in in our history, uh, and we're also going to have China as a great power in our neighbourhood. And I think potentially, and we can get into this later, potentially we're going to see the United States actually uh, give up its place as the leading strategic power and basically go home. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's a serious possibility, although that's still, you know, Australia is still largely in denial about that. So when you put all that together, you would have to say that in relative terms, uh, Australian military and strategic power in Asia is is declining. Not not in absolute terms, because we're still building a very capable military force, but over the long term, in relative terms, our national power will decline, uh, and 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 other nations will become. Uh, you know, more uh, more, more uh, militarily powerful and uh, more important to us, uh, and, and and of course we won't have the United States there, I believe, to mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, to help us uh, and 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 to be, you know, the the, the great protector in, uh, in in our region as it has been for so long. Right. Um, and therefore, I think Australia needs to as a as a defence priority needs to, one, make best use of its advantages. And the great advantage that we have is this, uh, is, is our distance uh, from, uh, uh, from anywhere else, from any great adversary. I mean, yeah, sure. China's in our na- China's in our neighbourhood, but it's still over 4,000 kilometres from, uh, 
from one of the most northerly point of Australia to the to the most southerly in China. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so distance, but but also adopt a strategy which uh, is uh, emphasizes strength, but never antagonism or aggression. Uh, mm-hmm. So we want to be we want to be the kind of country that is always able to protect itself and always able to impose costs, but which never tries to escalate conflict. And I think the 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 uh, the idea of Australia um, uh, buying long range strike weapons, particularly that could hit China, uh, uh, mm-hmm. the Chinese landmass, uh, I think is a recipe for. Um, strategic instability because in any kind of um, uh, crisis scenario with China where the use of force is being contemplated, uh, any capability like that from Australia uh, would, would, would only escalate the risks. So we, we would, mm-hmm. if we were contemplating using those kind of uh, strike assets, uh, we would actually give China a reason to preempt the use of them by striking mm-hmm. first. Uh, and even if we did get a few shots away, we would simply be inviting China to respond, you know, at far greater scale than we right. could ever muster. I mean, presumably they they can take they could take that punishment, right? Whereas Australia is would not be in a position to to withstand the, the retaliation as much. Exactly. Yes. So, uh, I mean, we, we should keep in uh, in proportion the amount of sort of destructive power we're talking about. Even China. Um, uh, to this day, even though it has missile capabilities to to reach Australia, the amount of destructive force that it could actually project onto Australia is is fairly limited. I mean, even those um, mm-hmm. uh, those larger missiles can only carry something like five hundred or a thousand kilograms of high explosive. That's enough to destroy a medium sized building, but not much more. So mm-hmm. uh, we're not talking about uh, you know World War Two style um, bombing campaigns. That's Right. That's really out of the question, but nevertheless, what would be what we would be inviting is 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 escalation. When I think every uh, every bit of good sense when I think about this problem is that uh, Australia should be able to defend itself, and will have to increasingly be able to defend itself alone without American help. Mm-hmm. But our instinct should be always to contain those kind of conflicts and to contain foreign policy crises. Uh, rather than seek to expand them with, you know, with threats of of, of using force against uh, the Chinese landmass, and then of course there's Indonesia. We should also be encouraging uh, Indonesia to form, I think, common cause with us. I mean, the, the the one thing, the big thing that we have in common with Indonesia is that neither country should want to see South Maritime Southeast Asia dominated by China. Right? We we both mm-hmm. want a situation in which we, we're never going to be able to stop China from being the biggest power in the region, but we can stop them from being the dominant power in Southeast Asia. That, that, is a, that, that ought to be a common unifying cause between Australia and Indonesia. And if we set off on a, on a project of independently developing long-range strike capability, then I think we invite suspicion and antagonism from Jakarta when mm-hmm. instead we should be setting off on this common cause. Very interesting. So l- let me ask. Let me ask you uh, uh, precisely about uh, Australia's um, um, foreign policy in, in this sense. Um, as my, many of my listeners uh, will know, there's there's been a lot of uh, talk about the Quad recently, um, and uh, possibly that reaching s- sort of a greater degree um, of formality. Would you view that as as in Australia's interests, or or is it better for Australia if precisely um, things remain perhaps more fluid, more informal, um, not not in writing and not institutionalized. I see it in Australia's interest, but only marginally. Uh, a lot of people, I think, in the Australian strategic community are investing a great deal of hope in this initiative. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it seems to me it has natural limitations because uh, Japan in particular, but also India, uh, and, and in future, even the United States, none are invested enough in the security of the three others that they would put uh, take serious risks on, on their behalf. Mm-hmm. Um, so let me explain a little bit what I mean. 
Um, for instance, it, it's, it's very difficult to see if there was ever a bilateral security dispute between, uh, uh, between China and Australia, which escalated to threats of military force. For me, it, it's very difficult to imagine circumstances in which India and Japan would come to Australia's direct aid with, with military aid, mm-hmm. because both of those countries have uh, economic and strategic interests with China that would outweigh any benefit that they would get from assisting Australia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, the, the economic relationship with China is really the, the, the defining thing here that prevents these four countries from really coming together uh, in the way that some strategic commentators imagine that it will ultimately turn into some kind of Asian NATO. Right, right. Uh, so I, I think it has some, some marginal benefits, but it's not going to be the main game. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and for the same reason, I think really the, the, the exception to that rule, when, when I say that none of these countries you know, would ever have uh, good enough reasons to come to Australia's aid in a, in a military crisis, the exception again is Indonesia because Indonesia and Australia share the same strategic geography. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, I think they do have a direct, clear interest in coming, in, in, in banding together and coming to one another's aid uh, to prevent any situation in which China has that kind of, uh, you know, that, that, that dominance and that coercive power in our maritime region. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so to the extent that the Quad actually takes us away from that focus, a focus that I think should be pretty squarely on Indonesia, then I think actually it might do harm to Australia's interests. Uh, that's very interesting. So, so you view the Quad in a way as as too far, both geographically and, as you said, economically. And perhaps Australia should focus more on on uh, on on the neighbor that's that's closer and therefore shares Australia's sort of geopolitical position more. Are are there talks going on, to your knowledge, between uh, um, perhaps the Australian Defence Ministry and and the Indonesian one, or? Well, well, the the, the relationship at the official level between Australia and Indonesia is pretty strong, uh, but it doesn't have s- very strong groundings um, either economically or in, in people-to-people terms. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the famous uh, kind of um, uh, factoid that gets thrown around here uh, in Australia uh, among people who bemoan this situation is that the, the trade and investment relationship with New Zealand is actually larger in net terms than it is with Indonesia, mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, whereas Indonesia has, a, um, uh, of course, a, a much larger population. Right. So the, the, the economic relationship is still pretty anemic and there aren't many natural complementarities that would indicate that that's going to uh, shift uh, very quickly. And also in people-to-people terms, the links are are kind of thin, except for the fact that Australians in, in, in non-COVID times love to holiday in Bali. Right. Uh, other than okay. that, people-to-people people, people, to people the links are very thin. And, uh, you know, for instance, the, the, the diaspora, the Indonesian diaspora in Australia is tiny compared to, say, uh, Thailand. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so, you know, there, there's an awful lot of groundwork yet to do. And uh, I think the kind of relationship that I'm talking about, which is akin to an alliance, really, that is far away. That, that is really a, a pipe dream for people like me at the moment. And there's no, there's no immediate prospect of that. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that, that might have to do with the fact that, as you said, um, uh, a, a lot of people are still placing a lot of hope on the continuation of, of um, the alliance with the United States. Now, um, you, you wrote a very interesting piece uh, about, the, about Biden's um, pullout in which um, you, you argue that uh, the, the lesson here might be for, for, for Australia, but for uh, East Asia in general, um, that there can, there can come a point uh, in, in, in US, among U.S. foreign policy elites, but also perhaps at a deeper level in society, in, in society itself, um, of just exhaustion and and kind of a lack of strategic patience, perhaps, and that what happened in in Afghanistan um, might repeat itself at some point uh, with in 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 the East Asian theater if um, if push came to shove and 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 the cost of 
staying there and of challenging China increased uh, uh, in, enough, as it were. Um, t- tell our listeners what, what your thinking is behind that and what, what that ultimately would mean for, for, for a country like Australia. Well, let, let me put it somewhat simplistically and, and crudely. Uh, the, since the Second World War, the United States has basically uh, stayed maintained a strategic and military presence in Asia for two reasons, uh, and, and, and one succeeded the other. So the first reason was clearly to, uh, uh, to counter and to contain the threat of Soviet-led communism. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that, was the, that was sort of the, the, the founding purpose of, America, of post-Second World War American uh, strategic policy, you know, announced by Truman in, the, uh, in 1947 in the, in the Truman Doctrine. Uh, and when that threat disappeared in 1991, the second purpose that that, uh, that succeeded the first one is essentially, I would argue, inertia. The United States mm. stayed in Asia because there was nothing to push it out. There was really no reason for the United States, no pressing uh, strategic or ideological reason for the United States to maintain uh, uh, its uh, its strategic presence in Asia. It did so largely because there was nothing there to push it out, and and the the, the cost of maintaining its primacy in 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 Asia was pretty was was containable, right. uh, and was manageable. What China has now done is obviously that 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 has become the prime mover behind disturbing that status quo, but but behind disturbing that inertia. China is so big. Uh, economically and and uh, also militarily uh, to uh, go along with that mm-hmm. that it, that the cost to America of maintaining its its position in Asia its position of leadership in Asia have risen dramatically North Korea's had a little bit to do with that in recent years as well particularly since it got uh, an ICBM mm-hmm. uh, but primarily of course uh, the 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 reason for the disturbance of this status quo is China uh, and and the the economics of it just uh, are just uh, undeniable in the sense that you know, China is already a far far bigger economy than the Soviet Union ever was. Right. Uh, our own uh, government projected a few years ago that by twenty thirty, the Chinese economy will be worth forty two trillion dollars, and at the same time, the U.S. economy will be worth twenty four trillion dollars. So <clears throat> almost double. And the United States has never faced an adversary on that scale before, ne- never in its history as a great mm. power. And, and one that was so interconnected, right? Because the, Soviet, well, yes, the Soviet Union was just off doing its own thing for, for 50 right, years. Right. Yeah. yeah. But what I think the, the, the problem that that raises, the, the, the sheer scale of, uh, of China's uh, economy and of uh, it, its, its growing strategic weight, the, the problem that it raises is uh, is that it forces the Americans to ask, as they did on a much smaller scale in Afghanistan, is this still worth it? Mm-hmm. And I don't think the answer to that is obviously yes, because despite China's size, it is not a clear threat to America, to American territory, to its way of life, or to the American economy. I mean, America is protected by two big oceans, by Canada to the north, Mexico on the south, neither of which are threatening to the US. America's got a huge military, thousands of nuclear weapons. Uh, its economy will do just fine without the uh, military presence in, in Asia. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've got to ask yourself, what, what actually is the United States fighting for in, in Asia, particularly if the stakes are now so, uh, if the cost, the potential costs of fighting of resisting China's rise are so much higher than they were before China began to rise. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and it seems to me the answer to that question is not at all obvious. And so there's a point at which the United States might do in Asia what it did in Afghanistan, which is to say, well, our military posture no longer reflects our national interests. So we have to change our military posture. Right. And and, and so what do you make of the view that... Um Sometimes, sometimes you get the feeling listening to both military planners and, and um, even President Biden 
that uh, the, the mere fact that, for example, trade could be threatened, um, for example, in, in and around Taiwan or, um, or in, in, in the region more generally, the fact that uh, uh, China is, for example, you know, creating these, these so-called air, air identification zones um, mm. and, and so on and so forth. Uh, is your sense that ultimately that is only skin deep, that America will not care that much whether um, China starts policing its neighborhood uh, a little bit more, um, more strongly perhaps than, than in the past? Or, or is that something that is ideologically so, uh, as it were, so, so potent in the American mind, this idea that the oceans should just in principle be free? Free in the sense that free for commerce and 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 uh, uh, freedom for navigation, right? As as the saying goes, uh, that that itself might be might be something that keeps drawing them back to the region. Well, I think you've hit on something important, and the one sort of key objection to the to the arguments that I laid out in my previous answer, and that is the the, the power of American ideology uh, around uh, sort of a sense of predestination for global leadership. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that sense is very, uh, you know, that, that feeling of America as an exceptional nation which must uh, uh, be a global leader or be the global leader is very strong among America's governing class and among, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the blob, <clears throat> excuse me, the blob as President Obama used to call them, the foreign policy right. leadership in Washington. But I don't think it's very deep among the American public at all, and I think, um, you know, that will exercise uh, a force all of its own um, uh, in, in, in future, and, and it already did in, in some part in the election of President Trump, who had, mm-hmm. who had no sympathy at all for that, for that view that America was somehow an exceptional nation, which, you know, ought to have a global military footprint just because it can. I think on the, on the, on the question of trade, I would just say, um, uh, you know, you, you can make the argument that the United States Navy needs to be everywhere in order to protect, uh, uh, you know, global uh, sea lines of communication and global trade networks. But the problem with that argument is that all trade is vulnerable. Uh, so, you know, the Americans can protect their own and can protect, uh, the, 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 to some extent, the trade of its allies as well. Even that's a very difficult uh, task. Uh, but even if China could, uh, you know, could threaten to sink l- lots of uh, American and allied, uh, you know, bulk carriers and tankers, uh, oil tankers and um, container ships, the the, mm-hmm. the U.S. and its allies can can threaten to do the same uh, to China because its trade is equally vulnerable. So there's a kind of mutual vulnerability at play here, which I think actually makes it likely that both sides will, uh, in a conflict, will refuse to take that step mm-hmm. because they know neither neither of them can really protect their trade properly and so they're both better off quarantining uh, um, uh, shipping trade from any, kind of, uh, uh, from any kind of conflict they enter into. Interesting, yeah. So, so we, we, we might see a kind of... Um uh mutual mutual deterrence going on right in terms of uh in, in terms of trade in the event in the event of a conflict precisely which which i think is is still even in your would you agree that it's it's uh still very unlikely right i mean the, the, sometimes you know you hear these suggestions that oh you know if we just had one more uh you know one more uh collision at sea or you know one more accidental midair uh, encounter, as as has happened uh, in the past, that um, that you know everything could blow up. I'm always a bit skeptical of that because um, it seems to me that in the end, um, uh, politics always trumps the military uh, dimension, and the, the you know whatever one might think about um, U.S. Uh, as you said, the blob uh, in the U.S. certainly the Chinese. They are, you know, these these are smart cookies. You know, these are very um, um, strategic um, and, you know, people with who, people who think, you know, 30, 40, 50 years ahead. Um, so it, it seems to me that the, the, the chances of an actual um, 
conflict, a, a kinetic one, as as the uh, as the parlance goes, is still pretty low. But but the trend lines are are concerning. I'd agree, it's still low. But I don't share your confidence about the wisdom of uh, of leadership on either side. Um, and I mm-hmm. think, you know, we've got plenty of evidence now. I mean, I, my mind goes back to World War One, but also. Um, uh, the, the kind of mistakes that the United States has made uh, in Vietnam, in Iraq and in Afghanistan, uh, plenty of evidence that great powers can make colossal and disastrous uh, strategic errors. Uh, and, and, and I think the, the real problem here is, uh, yeah, yes, there's, there's definitely scope for accidents uh, that trigger some kind of wider crisis. Uh, and the reason they might trigger a wider crisis is that either one or both sides misread the resolve of the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that they basically they basically don't understand how much the other side wants to win, um, and that I think is a is a real danger. And it's and it's very difficult for for either side to get an accurate read. Uh, I mean, I'm, I, I've made the argument to you today that that ultimately the United States will decide that it's not in its interest to maintain its strategic primacy in Asia, and it may leave, uh, uh, it may leave and, and bring its forces home altogether. Mm-hmm. Uh, but nevertheless, in a crisis, and given you know the the, the political culture in the United States, um, who's to say that the United States? In the event of uh, you know an accident, say involving a collision of two ships or the shooting down of some fighter aircraft, won't double down because its uh, you know its credibility is on the line. I mean, I think I think that's a real risk. Yeah, that 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 that's 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 interesting because as you said earlier, um, there, there's this interesting disconnect right between the governing classes, especially the foreign policy elites, let's say. Um, and and the American population at large, we saw that most um, most clearly, perhaps under under Trump. But I think certainly there's been a lot of um, continuity um, uh, under Biden, and that that I think certainly has to has to play has to have played some role in his thinking um, about Afghanistan. Although he was always very skeptical, uh, even yeah. under even when he was vice president, right? Um, but but as you said, I mean, it, it only takes uh, a spark to revive again the sense of nationalism on on both sides, right? I mean, we've seen a lot of um, expressions of uh, of nationalism uh, in China. Let, let me briefly ask you about that, just as we close here. Um, to what extent do you think um, the ideological dimension of the conflict here uh, it pl- plays a role? Um, as as you said, the U.S certainly has has had for a long time this sense of being an exceptional country not not like the other ones precisely uh, with with it almost the kind of historical mission or quasi historical mission of um you know protecting freedom and so on and so on and so forth um the chinese too of course they have um in a way their own sense of uh, exceptional although it's related to um to to the idea of communism which of course Ironically enough, it's not a Chinese idea at all, right? It's it's a Western yeah. one. But um, to to what extent do you think the the ideological forces here at play are are important? Um, for example, does does the communist legacy, as it were, um, in China play any role, or are we really just talking about the usual, you know, great powers politics game? Well, I mean, on the Chinese side, I think the, the the sense of exceptionalism is more to do with with nationalism and Chinese history than it than it has than it's ideological to do with uh, you know relating to communism. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I, look, I, I don't think there's much evidence at the moment that China is a particularly uh, uh, sort of expansive ideological power. I mean, if, you could argue, I think, pretty persuasively, that it was much more irresponsible. Uh, and much more ideologically uh, ambitious in the 1950s than it is today. Mm. Uh, there's not much evidence to say that you know China has ambitions to convert uh, foreign countries to its style of of governance or to its you know ideological preferences. It's much more clear that that China certainly wants to protect its own population from foreign influences, particularly Western liberalism. 
but it's not clear that China has uh, much of an ambition to export its ideology. Um, now, the United States, on the other hand, traditionally has had that, uh, that kind of ambition. Uh, and, you know, most recently we've seen the failure of that ambition uh, in Afghanistan. Right. Um, so I think m my preference, actually, given the, the stakes that are involved in this, that we're talking about potentially a, a contest between uh, the US and China, if we do have go into a, you know, a new Cold War, uh, we are looking at a contest that in its scale will be far larger than the Cold War between uh, the US and the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. If we are entering that kind of a period, then I would prefer that it, it, it be based on a kind of ideological truce, which is to say that the two sides effectively get together and say, look, okay, we're going to compete, but we're not going to try and uh, uh, export our ideology onto you and you're going to promise to do the same for us. Uh, so if if they could make that kind of principle in in principle agreement and back it with particular actions, um, then you know such as for instance that uh, the United States doesn't uh, broadcast the voice of America into China or or, or things of that mm -hmm. nature, uh, um, and that China stops uh, funding Confucius Institutes in the United States, symbolic gestures like that. If if they can agree on a kind of ideological truce. Then I think we have a better basis for a for a more stable uh, balance of power because both sides are acknowledging that the other is, e even though they have disagreements, that they are legitimate, that they are ideologically legitimate, mm -hmm. and I think that's that's a much better basis for a stable balance of power. Uh, so uh, you know, again, the, these are uh, these are ideas, but uh, <laughs> you know, the scope, yeah, the, the, sure. the actual likelihood of this happening, uh, well, there's. Um, uh, there's not much sense of it at the moment. Right. But everything starts with an idea, right? So, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Sam Rogivin, thank you so much uh, that, for your time. That was um, really interesting. And uh, for my listeners, again, uh, you'll find his, um, his articles on the Lowy Institute's website, lowyinstitute.org. The magazine is called The Interpreter. Um, I recommend you go and, uh, and check out his, uh, his articles. Very, uh, very thought-provoking. Uh, once again, Sam, uh, Sam Rogovin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thanks for tuning into David's Politics Show. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Until next time, so long.